following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. The best way to describe the Christian life is that of a pilgrimage. A long, often wearisome, hard journey. A journey that is full of valleys as well as mountains, mountain peaks. A journey that is sometimes full of weariness and travail, but also full of hope and triumphs. I think this is one of the reasons why the book Pilgrim's Progress is so popular. Because it does that very thing. In that book, Christian main character is shown to be going through his pilgrimage to the celestial city, to heaven. And, and, and as he goes through, he is he's seeking to unload this burden upon his back of guilt. And he meets various characters as he goes, as he makes his way. And on his way, he's, he's met with various trials and temptations. It's very apt to think of, of the Christian life in that sense, because the reality is that the Christian life is often weary. So it is full of trial. It is hard. And oftentimes, all the time, we need hope. We need sure and steadfast promises that we can hold on to when we're going through these these wearying and trying times in life. Think of your own life. Think of the various things that the Lord has taken you through. Times that you have maybe questioned His providence. Times that you have thought, what is, what is the Lord doing in these times? And in those times, what is it that you have set your hope upon? In those times of trial, what is it that enables you to continue to seek the Lord have confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Well, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing at the end of 1 Thessalonians. He's closing his letter giving the Thessalonians, this, this small group of Gentile Christians, hope as they continue in their own pilgrimage to heaven. Now Paul closes his letter with a benediction, and, during, and in this benediction he's rolling together these great themes that he's been expounding throughout the letter. These themes of, of, of first the gospel itself and the power of the gospel in the Thessalonians' life and how they've witnessed it themselves. Paul has spent much of the time also defending his ministry among them and refuting these errors that have come, that have been leveled against him by men who would creep into the church and, and seek to disband the church and disrupt the work of God. But also he leads into these great, into this benediction, these great truths that he's dealt with in, in chapters four and five. The need for holiness, and at the same time, clarifying and understanding Christ's second coming. Paul is essentially in this benediction addressing a group of believers, and he's asking himself, what could he say? Paul is answering the question, what could he say to encourage them? To give them hope as they continue on. Because Paul doesn't know whether he will ever see them again. 
Now we know that he wrote a second letter to them. But in Paul's mind in this moment, he's seeking to, he's seeking to bolster their faith with the promises of God. That is no different. The scenario is no different than what you and I find ourselves in the same today. The same thing today. That as we are seeking to continue to walk with the Lord, we also need the sure promises of the Lord. We need hope in times of trial and temptation. And so what we learn from this text this evening is that the promise and the basis of God's blessing urges you to a life of holiness and hope through His appointments. That the promise and basis of God's blessing exhorts you, it calls you to a life of holiness and hope through His appointed people. And I'd like us to consider it in two points. First, the promise of the basis of God's blessing, verses 23 and 24. And then the means of God's blessing in 25 through 28. But before we begin, I want us to consider this the idea of a benediction. Because in verses 23 and 24, that is what Paul's doing. He's pronouncing a benediction upon this group of believers. What's the purpose of a benediction? What is actually happening in that very act of an ordained servant of God pronouncing a blessing of God upon the people? Well, in, in number six, we have a very apt illustration. Not even illustration, we have, we have this great example of the benediction and the ironic benediction. And in there, the Lord commands Aaron through Moses on to bless the people, and what is actually happening while he blesses the people. The ironic benediction, beginning at number 6, beginning at verse 24, says this. Aaron is to bless the people in this manner, saying, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. But what's interesting is that verse 27 explains what is going on. Verse 27 says, So they shall invoke my name. The priests, the ordained servants of the Lord, shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, on the church, and I will bless them. The benediction is, is much more than some formality or just simply the closing, a few nice closing remarks. But the benediction is the placing of God's name upon God's people. It is God essentially saying, you are my people. I am your God. And from that place of, of being of God being our God and we being God's people, God promises to bless us. So the benediction is this, is this great statement of, of who God is promising to be for us and who He has claimed us to be as His own people. And it is under this umbrella that we should consider what Paul is now doing as he pronounces these promises. He's, he's, not, mere, uh, he's not merely pre presenting some well wishes to the people. But he's standing on behalf of God himself and pronouncing these great statements and these blessings upon the people. Well, what does he say? First, verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself First, he identifies who he is standing as a representative of. He's standing as a representative of the God of peace. 
Paul appeals to the true, the source of all true peace. Now, in our day and age, we often think of peace as simply quietness or stillness, maybe even the absence of conflict. But I think that there is a, a much deeper biblical understanding of peace. The Jewish conception of peace was more of de defining it in terms of wholeness. Not simply the cessation of conflict, but being whole in all parts. It was not only the cessation of conflict, but also the mutual working together for the benefit of two parties that have been reconciled together. Think of it in terms of, of two warring nations. Two nations that have been, spent years in conflict with one another. And now, due to one reason or the next, they have stopped fighting. But not only the biblical idea of peace is not that they just stop at war with one another. But now they come together and they're allies. They come together and they seek the mutual good of one another. In, in, in the term of societies and things like that, they begin to trade with one another and to build one another up. So the biblical conception of peace is so much more than simply the cessation of conflict, but it is a mutual building up of one another. Think of Christ's words, his first words to his disciples after the resurrection. He appears to them. What does he say? Peace be with you. Meaning, it is, it is accomplished. The great work of the cross is accomplished. There is now peace between God and man. And in our meditation this evening, that great statement in Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified, having been made righteous through faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul pronounces this blessing from the standpoint not only of a cessation of conflict between us and God, but now that God is working on our mutual behalf, that we are to reciprocate in that same way, that we are now, we are now made whole with God in a, in a sense. That we have been reconciled to Him. Paul not only, he, he begins by appealing to God as the God of peace. But then he continues to pronounce these blessings on them. The first is, that, the first is this. He prays that God would sanctify them. Not what he prays. He pronounces upon them that He would sanctify them. Holy. That is that He would set them aside to Himself. Set them aside to and for himself. But again, they would be his people. Distinct. The nation of Israel was distinct among the nations, among the pagan nations. They were to be a light to the nations. So Paul pronounces this blessing upon the Thessalonians that God would sanctify them wholly, that he would make them a beacon of light among those around them. There would be, they would, that their, this group of believers would be a bold witness to the truth and of God's power among them. They would be a distinct and peculiar people in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But not only that God would sanctify them corporately, but He would also sanctify them individually. As He says in verse 23, halfway through 23, May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. So not only is this a calling out of a distinct people and that God is making them holy as a people, but also that God is calling the people and He's making each individual holy in spirit, soul, and body. 
Now here there's disagreement whether Paul is teaching that a person is made up of a spirit, soul, and a body. But I think that to get lost in those weeds, at least for this purpose, we're, we're missing what Paul's driving at. Paul is driving at the, the, the greater reality that God will sanctify your every aspect of you. Every element of your being would be completely consecrated to God. Your mind, your will, your affections, your desires would all be sanctified to Him. And that they would be sanctified to Him for the purpose that you would be without blame. Without blame in the coming of Christ. Paul not only appeals to that they would be sanctified in the here and now, but then he gives them hope in that not only has God sanctified you now, but he has promised to sanctify you in the future, at the coming of Christ, that he would keep you blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this word blameless, this does not mean sinless. We cannot take them as sinless. Blamelessness does not mean sinlessness. But blamelessness means that, that you deal with your sin. That when you are that when you are brought, that when sin is brought to your mind, whether it be pointed out by a brother and sister in Christ or the Spirit convicting you through reading the word or prayer, or whatever the case may be, that you deal with your sin. The blameless man or woman does not allow sin to fester and to remain in their life, but they take every opportunity to, to expunge it from their life, to, to flesh it out. That they might be holy before the Lord. But this promise is not only that they would be sanctified in every aspect of their life, but that they would be sanctified until Christ returns. Until He returns at His second coming. The second coming which brings the end of the age. The second coming which brings the consummation of redemptive history. As we sang earlier of, of Christ's second coming glory of that, the resurrection. And we confess it. That what, we will, what, the, what are the benefits of a believer at the resurrection? Here, Paul points to that very event. The second coming of the Lord, where when, when Christ will come and He will resurrect all those who have fallen asleep. And we'll have that great day when all believers are vindicated openly and, 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 they, and they are acknowledged before a watching world that they are indeed the Lord's. Paul is pronouncing this blessing, this promise upon them, that God will not only call a people to Himself, but He will uphold that people, holy, until Christ's second coming. Well, it's one thing to make promises. It's another thing to have a rock-solid basis and foundation for promises. I think if, if you were to think any length of time, how many of you could say promises have been made to you, but those promises have also been broken? So what is our basis for taking these promises in God's Word and holding fast to them? Well, Paul, almost anticipating the question, then gives us the very basis that the Thessalonians were to hold fast to, but also that you and I are to hold fast to this evening. In verse 24, we're given the basis of God's promise, and that is this. <coughs> Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Nothing less than the faithfulness of God. Paul points to that in 
and we are pointing this evening to the faithfulness of God that in times of trial and weariness, that as, we're, as we've been promised to be held and kept by the power of God, we are pointing to the faithfulness of God as the grounds for why we have hope in those times. He points to God as the God who calls. That God has called each and every believer to Himself. That He has called them out of darkness. He's called them to Himself. And He's called them for a purpose. He's called them from sin and misery. That God is not like men. In the fact that when God begins a work, He brings it to completion. He is not like men in the fact that He may start something and then grow weary with it and then lay off. But instead, God, who's, who's called a man or a woman or a child to Himself, will bring that work to completion because of His faithfulness. But not only that He has called them, but that He will uphold them. If God has called you, He will preserve you. Consider Philippians 1, 6. Paul says, For I am sure that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That God is a God, but the God of peace who calls us, not only calls us out of our sin and misery, He not only calls, him, he calls us to Himself, but that He has promised to uphold us and that when he has started a work, he will bring that work to completion. You and I are pointed to the trustworthiness of God this evening. The bottom line in, these te- in this text is that in all such matters, God is not completely trustworthy in the sense of that he's just worthy of our trust, but absolutely to be relied on to carry out what has been promised. The basis of, our, of God's promises is His faithfulness. The basis of our hope is the faithfulness of God that He has shown to us. So how has God been faithful? We're to think a little deeper. How is it that God has been faithful? Think of your own life. How has God been faithful to you? Even in, especially in those times when you cannot see it. Or in those times when you doubted the faithfulness of God. The promises. God has shown Himself faithful throughout all of human history. Beginning with, and especially for us, this living this side of the cross, we can rejoice to see the fulfillment of, of the first proclamation of the gospel made in Genesis 3. That the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And that that was accomplished at Calvary. That those Satan bit the heel of Christ, Christ bound the strong man and crushed him took away, taking away His power. That God has been, we look at this, how many of the Psalms are just littered with the faithfulness of God to Israel? To a people who are faithless to Him. And how often how God has God rescued them and has, and has given us the constant reminder in Scripture to remember. Remember the faithfulness. Remember the goodness of God in times past and allow it to fuel Hope and confidence in the future that God is the same God of yesterday as He will be tomorrow. And lastly, we take great hope in the faithfulness of God in that it is impossible for God to lie. 
Then just think of that for a moment. That it is impossible for God to lie. That it is, it is impossible for Him to go against His nature, who He is, as the living and true God. That God, once He has said something, once He has spoken it, once He has set His hand to a task, He will complete it. Because it is outside of His very nature to leave it unfulfilled. Paul has pronounced these great promises upon this church. He's pronounced upon them the faithfulness of God and that God will sanctify a people to Himself, that He will call them to Himself and that He will sanctify not only the group but the very individual and that He will uphold that very work until He brings them home in the glory. As we look at this, as it says in verses 23 and 24, just notice the God-centeredness of this benediction. God is said to be the God of peace. He is said to be the, the one who sanctifies, the one who keeps, the one who calls, and the one who is faithful. God is the main actor in all of these things. And we are passive. We are passive in these things. We are not, Paul does not urge them to keep themselves. But he says that God will keep them. God is the source. And we must go and lean upon Him for all things. So it's one point of application. As, we, as, you, as you have thought of God's faithfulness to you throughout the years. Do you think of God also in these terms? As the God of peace to you. As the God who has sanctified you. And is continually sanctified. The God who has called you out of your own sin. And the God who has promised to keep you in His faithfulness until the return of Christ. Does the work of God cause you to break forth into praise and adoration as you consider God's faithfulness upon your life? Does it, does it well up inside of you to want to cry out in, in praise to God for what He has done for you and how He is continually upholding you each and every day? Because the reality is that if left to ourselves, we could all walk away from the Lord. Without the upholding presence of the Spirit in our life, we would all walk away. But yet God is faithful to us. His mercies are new every morning. Also, is the God-centeredness of this benediction. Does it comfort you that God has accomplished everything necessary for your salvation and promised to preserve and uphold you and all those who come to Him seeking His mercy? God has been faithful to all generations. He's faithful to the thousand of thousand generation. And having considered the promises and the basis of God's blessing, the question must be asked. How do you respond to the faithfulness of God? Does the promise of blessing allow us to be passive and idle? Or does it urge us forward? The bottom line is that God is a God of means. God has ordained certain means on how He, how the conduit for how He blesses His people. God has promised to bless, and His blessings are realized in the great gifts of prayer and of fellowship and of His Word. 
So Paul then turns in verses 25 and 28, and that explains the means of God's blessing. Answering the question, God has made these grand and magnificent promises to bless His people and to uphold them. Now, how is that? How are those blessings realized in space and time? How is it that you and I seek the blessing of God? Because to answer the question, no, we are not to remain passive in idols in light of God's great promises. Yes, He is the one who's promised to keep us, but that does not allow us to sit back. That the means of God's blessing, or the exhortations, considering God's promise and faithfulness. The first one that we're exhorted to is to prayer. Verse 25. Brethren, pray for us. Throughout the letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has been reminding Thessalonians how much he prays for them. That he prays for them night and day. They were exhorted just earlier in this chapter to pray unceasingly for one another and also to pray for their leadership. I think here Paul is even intertwining the two. He's asking that they pray for Paul and, and the missionaries that are traveling with Paul. Paul lays before them the necessity of prayer and also the privilege of prayer. The, the God who does not need our prayers desires us to come to Him desires us to see Him as the fount and the source of all true blessing and to seek Him for it. To cry out to Him. That we see prayer as a privilege of coming and unbounding our hearts to the Lord. That we can come to God pleading with Him. That we can come to Him and we can, we can in a sense, un, unburden our hearts of, of the weariness and the pain and the trial and the joys that we're experiencing each and every day. And hopefully multiple times a day as we walk through our days. We're constantly in prayer, seeking the Lord's faith. The privilege of prayer to come to Him because He desires us to come to Him. That the Lord, think about that, that the Lord desires you to come to Him. That the God, the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God of the universe desires his finite creatures, His redeemed finite children, to come to Him and to lean upon Him. It's interesting how in the book of, in the Gospel of John, how often John is said to be leaning upon Jesus. And the beloved disciples leaning upon Jesus. Just wanting to be in His fellowship. Communion with Him. That's the picture that we should have in prayer. Leaning upon the Lord for everything. Not only do we, not only is prayer laid before us as a means of God's blessing, but also, in verse 26, to greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now here in that culture, here this is a, a, a gesture of, of love and endearment for one another. Much like in our culture, a, a warm hug. We embrace one another. What is, what is in the heart is being expressed physically. We're embracing one another. Showing affection toward one another. And it shows us the great blessing and the privilege of being a part of the church of Christ. How much that is. That we are to, to love one another as Christ has loved us. And that we are to we are to we are to come alongside of one another when we are weary. We are to encourage one another to constantly be at work. Seeking to minister and to serve one another, and how much of a blessing that is. I mean, think of think of it in your own life. How much have you been blessed by prayer? How much have you been blessed by the fellowship of other believers coming beside you and speaking a kind?
kind words or praying with you for you. How much has this upheld you in those in times of trial and weariness? And it caused you to have great joy in the Lord and in His promises. We said it earlier in, a, in, a, in another sermon how Christ ministers to His people through His people. Now that this principle is permeated here in, in the great blessing of fellowship toward one another. And lastly, but I say preeminently, is laid before us the Word of God. Verse 27, I adjure you, or I put you under an oath by the Lord to have this letter read to all the world. Here we have the great centrality of Scripture. Paul, being an inspired apostle, knows that, knows, I believe that he knew that he was writing Scripture. And so for that purpose, he, he puts them under an oath in, in, before the Lord. He puts this great emphasis on it, that, they, that, that Scripture is not simply for private reading, but it is for public, and it is for all men and women. And I think this is why we should, have, we should have so much scripture in our lives in every sense. This is why that in worship we should pack as much scripture in as we possibly can. It is the very words of God to us. Do we see it that way? Do we see, do we see our Bibles as God speaking to us in a profound way, in a life-giving way? That the scripture is necessary for all things, but also the power of the word. Earlier, in chapter 1, Paul spoke of the power of the Word of God as it moved among the Thessalonians and they turned from idols to the living and true God. Earlier in the book, Paul pointed to the fact that as he preached to them, that they received his words not as the words of men, but as what they really were, the words of God. That the Bible is central, it must be central in our lives because it reveals to us who God is, but it is also powerful. As Hebrews 4 says, sharper than any two-edged sword, the division of spirit and soul, of bone and marrow. The power of the Word, the necessity of the Word, but also it places upon us our need to receive the Word. How do we view the Bible? How is it as you come to your Bible each day, you receive the testimony of Scripture as true? Do we receive it as the very words of God? Do we allow it to, to penetrate our hearts and truly change us? Paul put them under an oath, not because he was he wanted them to be reading what he wrote, but because he understood. That change comes through the Word of God and being applied by the Spirit of God to their hearts. Paul has pronounced the blessings of God upon the people in this benediction, but he's also told them how they're to respond. But lastly, in verse 28, he then closes the letter with this great statement The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting here is that he opened the letter in the very same way. Verses, chapter 1, verse 1. Grace to you and peace. He closes it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
this letter is not only bookended with the grace of God, but it points us to the very to the to the fact that the grace of God permeates the believer's life. That God calls us to Himself by His grace, and it is by His grace that He will uphold us to the end. From beginning to end, the grace of God is at the forefront of the Christian life. So how is it that we see the grace of God? How do we see the grace of God? Well, we see the grace of God earlier in God's calling to Himself, that He's faithful, that He's the God of peace, that He will sanctify. How do you see the grace of God? Do you see it as central? Do you see it as the gift that it is? Do we see it preeminently in the cross? We see the cross held up high as the pinnacle of God's grace. That not only has God from all eternity past called the people to Himself, that then in, but that He is faithful to bring their redemption to pass. That now that salvation and redemption have been accomplished in the sense of Christ coming and dying on the cross for sinners, that God is now for us the God of peace. That He is the God who is, because He is the God of peace, that He is sanctifying us, that He is keeping us, that He has called us, that He is faithful to us. That if you sit here this morning, as a, excuse me, this evening as a Christian, that your sins have been expunged by the blood of Christ, the sinless Lamb who was slain. That the grace of God is held forth for us, for us to marvel at, for us to praise Him, That we should see it as beginning and ending of everything that we do. Well, the reality is that the Christian life may be difficult. It is a long, wearisome, oftentimes hard pilgrimage. But it in no way should cause us to doubt the faithfulness of God. But here in these few verses, we've looked at this benediction and the pronouncement of the blessings of God upon His people. That He is a God of peace to them. That He has reconciled them to Himself. That He has called them to Himself. To Himself. That He is sanctifying them. That He is upholding them through every valley and peak in their lives. And that He has promised to bring all of His begun work to completion on the day of Christ. That God has promised. And the basis of His promises for blessing. Urge us to a life of holiness and a life of hope as we await Christ's coming. But we think of these things. Finally, God's peace that He has offered to you, His great work that He has done in your life, His faithfulness. And let that fuel a desire for holiness. Let that fuel a life full of hope that He who's begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. And all will be awake that day when he calls us home. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not only made great promises to us in your word, but you have given us the sure and steady basis of those promises. That is your faithfulness. 
that not one word that you have spoken has ever fallen flat, but you have brought to fruition everything for which you have purposed to accomplish. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would give us hope, that you would give us the ability by your Spirit to apprehend these things, to claim them as our own, to hold fast to them. We pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us to yourself. Lord, especially as we go through this week, we dedicate ourselves to you, that you might use us powerfully in all the spheres and circles that you've placed us. And Father, we pray that you would also use this collection that we take up to advance your kingdom. Lord, that your name would be proclaimed from every housetop upon every nation. It's in Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.